Jesus, we thank you for your presence in our midst. We thank you that you came to reveal a way of life that was so wonderful that evoked awe in the people who encountered it. Lord, I pray that some of that wonder would be given to us this morning and that it would move us to yield to you from our own lives the most precious things for you are worthy, Lord. And with that, Lord, you give us your blessing, the blessing of a true king whose kingdom is above all others. For you are king of kings and lord of lords. Amen. You may be seated. So we're uh, in the second Sunday of, of the Christmas season, which is, uh, it's not that often that you actually get two Sundays in the Christmas season, the way the calendar works out. Um, but this year we have that. So we've got a little bit of a pivot going on here. We're in the Christmas season, which is the celebration of the Lord's birth. He, uh, unbelievably, God becomes flesh and dwells among us, and he begins as a little baby, the same way that all of us do in that same um, both beautiful and yet very innocent and vulnerable context. Um, so there is Jesus, the babe. He's been born, and he's um, been alive uh, for some time, it seems, it, it, probably two or three years, according to a lot of scholars, when the... Uh, uh, the, the, these wise men from the east finally come and they are looking for him because they see him uh, potentially as a new ruler who needs to be honored. And possibly they see it as a lot more. And Matthew, I think, is conveying it that way. That they're seeing something of Jesus that's a lot more than meets the eye. And they're seeing that all creation is actually speaking truth in such a way that it provokes them to look for what's really going on here. They read the signs of the times, right? They actually are, they have a kind of a wisdom and that's how they're named. They're named as wise men. It's an interesting contrast because you'd think that the Jewish people who were God's own people, his chosen people who had been given specific revelation about the coming of Messiah, they would have been on the alert. They would have been looking for that sign of when the promised one was gonna come and they weren't. So here we have the wise men coming and revealing something that was really hidden to many. I think uh, we have that same situation now. I think for, for those of us who are trying to live in that same light that the wise men were seeking, um, it feels very hidden to us when we are living in the way of the world, like Herod. It will feel hidden. You won't feel like you have access to that wonder that provoked people to worship back then. If you're living in the way of the world, it's actually gonna be blinding to you. If you're living in the way of, for instance, a Herod and the leaders of that day, even though you know, you may know a lot about God, you might miss his real presence in the midst of your life. Because if you really let him come into your life and you really perceive him in the truth of who he is, it will change the way you live. I mean, when somebody's ruling you, they have authority in your life, right? Who's ruling you? Who's leading you in your life? Who do you grant that kind of authority? I mean, the thing about the way that Lord has created us is he's made it possible for us to accept his presence in our lives and all of what that implies or reject that. We have one major big decision in that regard and that is when we um, receive Jesus and we accept him we, we, uh, we say yes to him, 
and all of the blessing through forgiveness of sins that he wants to bring, and then we're baptized into him. That's the, the biggest decision of submitting to his authority that we can ever make. Um, if we're really fortunate, we're raised in a Christian family where our parents make sure that we're raised in that light. They will baptize us and they'll sponsor us to be raised in that, to know that, to experience that as much as in their power. But there still will be a choice for every one of us who've been baptized before we can remember with our, our cognitive memories. We will have a choice and we do have a choice. And we every day, we have a choice. Israel had a choice that day. They had a choice the entire time that he was revealing himself. So the same choice is presented to us right now. And the same temptations are presented to us right now not to live in that light of a different authority. I, I keep associating this revelation of God because we're now about to enter into this season where God's revealing what it means that he has come into the world. He's revealing what it means that his kingdom is here. It's not immediately apparent to the world because the world would expect you to crash and bang and blow up stuff if a kingdom was gonna come in and take things over because that's kind of how it worked, even in the days of Rome. It'd be a big explosion of transformation and this is not how God does it. It's explosive, but it's not the way they expect it. It's not by forcing people to bend the knee. You know, the, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana that was, is actually held up very high in history uh, was forged out of a blood and steel and smoke. And this kingdom, of course, was formed out of blood that was given, not taken. It was given freely because he loves us. And it's a kingdom that's so different that Jesus says it's, it's not of this world. It won't look like that. He says that quite clearly in so many different ways, and he manifests it through the way that he lives. So we have here this light that's rising, okay? There's a different way of rulership that's happening. Um, in the Old Testament, a lot of times light is associated with governance. Um, it kind of starts even in the creation story, if you remember, where uh, God sets up a, a greater light to govern the day and a lesser light to govern the night. And that's carried on throughout scripture. The rising of a new government was often associated with, with um, a rising of a star. And that continues. And um, I think in some ways it is true that the Lord speaks to us through different signs. His most clear sign is given in scripture. His most clear signs are given in the prophecies of the Old Testament and now for us also, the New Testament. All of it pointing to Jesus. All of it speaking of him. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And um, that is what these wise men are picking up on. I think the other wonderful thing about this, this story is that these wise men's coming from the east, that they're, um, they, they represent us in many ways. They're not the chosen people. But they're people who, because they're made in the image of God, as every human being is, they have planted in their hearts a kind of nostalgia. They know that things aren't right in this world and they want it to be better. I think one of the things about this season is it's very nostalgic, isn't it? I mean, this is our last Sunday to do a lot of Christmas uh, hymns. And it, it always, you know, it's, I hate to let it go unless you've been doing it all throughout Advent, which in this culture pro probably you have, then you might be ready to let it go. But it's nostalgic, isn't it? It, it? it evokes things for you about maybe moments when 
If you didn't experience it, you wish that you had. And you watch those Christmas movies like it's a wonderful life and, and the, the bell is ringing at the end of the movie and, and you're just, and it's, it's family and it's love and it's nostalgic. And you realize if you don't have that, how much you long for it. And I think what, what's happened in the hearts of the Magi, anybody who is truly wise, is they get really honest about that. This is a healthy kind of nostalgia. When things aren't right in your life, it's really wise to acknowledge that. And it's really wise to acknowledge that how you're running your life and the rules by which you're running your life, they aren't wisdom. And there is no light in them. In fact, you feel like you're wandering around in the darkness and you're stumbling over stuff and sometimes you're getting hurt because you're not in a good light to make the way clear. You need a different way of being governed. And so they realize that, and so that motivates them to look and seek. They know how to read the signs of the times somehow. By the way, the Old Testament's really clear. We're, we don't do astrology, right? We don't try and read really specific details about how's my day gonna be, how's my month gonna be by looking to the stars. I think there are ways that the, that the heavens speak to wisdom, but I think it's very, very approximate, right? I think that, that's the way that I might put it. Um, because there, there certainly is the revelation of God that the heavens are telling. But something is going on here. Something profound is happening at a cosmic level because it's a star. And they notice it. And they are paying such close attention that they notice it. And they're looking wherever they possibly can to find it. They have eyes that are wide open. Like they're not, they're not just like settling for the the darkness that they're hunkered down in, like I think a lot of us often do. This is just how life is. We say that. We resign ourselves from the possibility that there could be more light in our lives. We just bend down in and accept and resign. And I think what God wants to do for us is to let that light come in. And he's just saying, open your eyes a little bit. Let that nostalgia prompt you to look. The longing make you to look. And these wise men are wise for that reason. And Matthew remembers them that way. And he's writing as a Jew to Jewish Christians at this point to remind them of the gospel that is light. And he's saying that these wise men who came from the outside saw that light and they followed it and they sought it. Well, they, they go to King Herod, which is kind of an interesting thing to do because, you know, in those days, if you went to a king and said, hey, We've heard about the birth of another king coming. That could get you killed. That's not necessarily the wisest thing to say on the face of it. But actually, they're a lot more shrewd than we realize because um, Herod didn't have that power in those days. Uh, Rome had them pretty much firmly under their thumb. And so Herod's power, to that extent, was circumscribed. But they thought that perhaps he would even acknowledge it. Like the real king, the one that's actually going to liberate, he's been born. The one that's been prophesied, he's been born, the new king, the coming king, the promised one. So tell us where this king of the Jews is, and Herod doesn't know. And the wise people, theoretically wise, who should have known, well, they, they search the scriptures and they say, well, from what we understand, it's Bethlehem. And that prophecy comes from Isaiah. The new king, the son of David, who will be the Messiah, is gonna be born in Bethlehem and he will become a ruler, a shepherd. He will be the good governor that you've been hoping for. 
Herod does this on the sly. He consults with um, these wise men. He wants to be kind of subtle about it. We know his intentions are really evil. We know this because shortly after um, this whole experience, he will kill every child that falled within the time frame of, the, of that star. So every child under three years of age in that area was killed. So he says to them, go search diligently, go to Bethlehem for the child, and when you've found him, bring, bring me word so that I too can come and worship him. They listen to the king, and they're listening to all the levels of the king, by the way. They're picking up on what's intended here. I think there's something whiz, really wise about that, too. They go home by another way. And I want to just notice that they go home by another way right now because I think sometimes when we come into faith or when we're, we're working with our kids, for instance, and they're just babies in the faith, or if you're working with a brand new disciple who's just new to the faith, it's really important that they have something of a safe haven until they're ready to be in this world that's full of danger. And so these wise men are shrewd, and I think in some ways we need to be much more shrewd about the safe haven that we provide for baby Christians and for our children who we're raising up in the faith. There's a kind of protection that has to come from really astute understanding of the risks that are in the world. And if you're a new Christian, I want to encourage you to submit to that kind of care. Like if you're a new Christian and you don't know everything that there is to know and you're not fully secure in your faith there, well then seek some of the safe haven of what the church can provide and trust them to tell you what's true. Don't go looking out in the world for what is true, but entrust yourself to those who have been trying to, very hard to carry on the truth and be faithful to it. It's not that the people of the church always do well with that, by the way. We know they fail. But the true truth that has been given to us, that's represented especially in the scriptures and New Testament, the stories of Jesus, entrust yourself to those entirely. Let them take care of you if you're a young Christian. And if you're somebody who's mentoring somebody who's young, um, attend to their safety. Attend to their spiritual safety. Surround them with your prayers. If you can't talk to them, surround them with your prayers. Be wise in this way. So this way of governance, in some sense, they've already begun to live in that light because they go home by a different way. There's a lot of wisdom in this government. So um, they go on their journey to go and see this uh, king of the Jews. And this thing happens, kind of cool, that Matthew pulls out in the text. He says, behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, um, it went before them until it came to rest. And it stood there. It stopped. And the, the, the sense that you get here in Matthew, he's making a real um, overture towards the, how, how God's presence was signified in the Old Testament. There's this movement that happens as Israel's going through the wilderness. And it's a movement of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it's a movement. And the, the Israelites follow the presence of God. And that's the, the sign by which they knew where to go and how to remain with God. Well, the Magi, in a sense, it seems that that's, there's something along those lines because typically stars don't move like that, unless it's a shooting star, but that happens so fast, there's no way they could be running hundreds of miles 
<laughs> at that rate, right? So something is going on there that's quite different. This is a, a cosmic thing that's happening that's quite different. And they are able to follow it, and it settles right over where Jesus is. Again, this is incredibly unique. These are things that are remembered. I'm sure that they were told to the early church by Mary, who was a, the mother of Jesus, but also part of the early church. So she's telling this story to all the disciples. These are things, by the way, that Luke says she treasured in her heart. So she stored them away. And they became part of the treasure of her heart. And what is she doing? She's doing something very similar to what the wise men do, in a sense. She's taken these memories, these true memories of Jesus, and opened them up and shared them with the church. And in many ways, I think, that's what the church can do in the world, is to take these treasures of who Jesus really is and open them up and share, first with one another, but then with those who don't yet know the light. So they go, and this, this star stops, and it comes to rest. It's like, this is it. This is what you've been seeking. And so they're exceedingly joyful. They're joyfully joyful. This is the joy of joys. You know, I talk about the holy of holies, that, that very, very central place in the universe, in the temple, which is supposed to be the temple, where the center of the world, Israel's the center of all the governments, right? That's how they understood it in the Old Testament. And you've got this holy of holies, it's the, the place where you can come face to face with God, and only the high priest could do that, and it was so central. That's the kind of joy here. This is a joy of joys, is how Matthew is putting it because there's a revelation of God that's so powerful that's happening. And it stops there, and it's there. I think what happens for us a lot of times is like, okay, well, great, now I'm a Christian, and um, I, I guess I know the truth now. And I've got it straight, and I've got, you know, I've got all my thoughts maybe correct. But, well, there's a lot more to it than that. It, are, are we letting the, the truth of that the, the finality of that revelation. It's really God here. Are we letting that evoke the joy that that might and should mean for us if we're really coming to grips with it? I think we have a chance to do that, especially I think we come into that place of holy of holies when we come to the table. And that's the place where, where Jesus reveals himself most powerfully, so powerfully. It's renewed within us even. It strengthens us. It renews the cleansing that we need so that our eyes can see. And it renews our encounter with God in such a profound way that we'll actually have the Holy Spirit reminding us that now you are a child of God. Now you are children of light, children of the Father of lights. This is your true identity. The light has come into you and it's being renewed here. And it's, it's almost like when you receive the communion, you're like Isaiah, you take one of those burning coals off the altar, uh, the angel takes it off the altar and it, it cleanses your lips and it cleanses your heart and you're renewed in the truth of who you are as a person of fire and light. This is the joy of joys. This is the holy of holies. And these wise men don't keep seeking they don't move on from there, they go in. They go in because they realize they've come, they've finally come to where they needed to be. 
So they rejoice exceedingly with this great joy, this joy of joys, and they go into the house. They go into the, the household of Mary and Joseph. You think of this as going into the church. You hear that the, the Christians knew something in those early days. The Christians knew something that the world didn't know. They knew something that was so profound that they were willing to die for it. They knew something so profound that they were willing to give away all their wealth. They knew something so profound that they didn't indulge in all of the things that the world indulged in. Like they, you've often heard me quote that saying about the Christians. They love so much and they give so much and they love so much and they share everything except for their wives, right? Because they were holy people. And that's how much different the way they lived their lives. That's how much different the rule of their life was, the government of their life. It was so different. And they learned that in the household of God. The wise men go into the house of God. This is where we learn first and foremost about what is it like to be like Jesus. And uh, if, if the church is being herself, we will live in his, in his light. We will live in the light of his words. We will live in the light of his wisdom. If we're really being ourselves as his children of light, there, there won't be darkness in us. We won't be continuing to toy with and to dally with a different way of life. We will let his words completely permeate. We will let that light go into every dark part of who we are and begin to take over because it's a blessing, because it's love, because it's joy. So they go into the house in order to do that. They see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down worshiping him. When we really come to grips with who God is, who God is in Christ, it, the truest response is to fall down and worship. There is something so amazing about the truth of who God is when he reveals himself, when you see it and that light penetrates deep into who you are, to the center of your being. It evokes a profound response and you fall down before him because he is a holy God Everyone who is wise, the angels who are wiser than we are, they are in awe of him and they fall down before him. The truest thing that we can do with our lives is to adore him. We're made to be adoring creatures, adoring of God. So they, they fall down and they worship him in this moment just as we fall down and worship the Lord every Sunday. Sometimes we'll kneel for an extended part of the Eucharist after, after we do the, the prayer at the table. Sometimes, well, we almost always kneel for the confession. It's like that moment where we say, you know, Lord, not my rule anymore. I've been living in the wrong way. That's what sin is, is living in the wrong way according to a different government, my own maybe or something evil, something worldly. And no, not that government anymore. Yes again, Lord, I say to your government. And you fall down and you worship him there. This is um, the sign of their coming to him and truly acknowledging him as a wise person would. So then they open their treasures and we're gonna um, just spend a little bit of time with these treasures. They open their treasures. 
I like, I like that because it's, it's saying that there are things in our lives which we do treasure, and, and if you think about it, this is, this is very realistic. Um, it's realistic because this is, this is stuff that we actually care about. I mean, every single one of us, when we're really honest with ourselves, we know we care about money, and we care about money because how else are we gonna pay our bills, and how else are we gonna have a roof over our heads and eat? How else are we gonna take care of those little kids that are innocent? We care about it. And how else are we going to be um, safe in a dangerous world except to fund a government that could potentially protect us, I guess, right? Or we would hope. So this is real. And when Jesus' government comes into our lives, it has a real impact. And it does say something about how we use what's most precious to us, and that means our money. Where is your money going to? I think what, what's happening here is they're giving gold, first of all. And gold is something you give to a king. That's how they always understood it. Gold is something that you give to a king. And you give it to him so that you'll be okay, so that he will protect your interests, and your interests are completely identified with his. And you give him gold, and it's a way of saying, what's mine is yours, and he says in return is that everything is, of mine is to take care of you and what's yours. And so they give him that thing that's precious. I think in the, in the life of the faithful, of Israel and the church, they always gave, and they gave a tenth of their income. And that starts way back with Melchizedek and Abraham after a blessing from God. God bless you guys. They're going to an event. And so they give of that thing that's precious. I don't know how you what your attitude is towards your own wealth. I think a lot of times we, we just want to keep it to ourselves because it would really be unsafe to give much. And I think a tenth feels like a lot, doesn't it? To give a tenth? I mean, that was the way that the faithful always did it. A tenth of their income, they gave it up to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Primarily, they would, in Israel, they would do it by giving it to the temple so the temple could actually run. So the temple could actually light the lights, so to speak, of temple worship and it could be seen from miles away and bear witness to the true God. So they give of that. By the way, I, I want to associate this also with strength. It says that the, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, right? So strength is a physical dimension of our lives. It's how we spend our energy. We sometimes say, it's, well, how do you spend your time? Your time is an expenditure of energy. How much do you spend working? How much do you spend entertaining yourself? That's an expenditure of strength, and and gold is sort of a a symbol of all of the strength that you poured out to earn something so that you might be okay, so that you could actually have your own kingdom, right? Well, what we're saying when we give to God our gold is that all of this is from you, and it's ultimately oriented to you. Where are you living? Are you living in the orientation to him? By the way, this star rose in the east. Orient is the east, right? How are you oriented? Where is, where is your whole life directed? Is it directed to gold as an end in of itself? Or is it directed to God? And I think one of the ways that we say, yes, it's directed to God, is we give in the ways that I think are somewhat costly at times. So they give him gold. This is true worship. They give him frankincense and myrrh, too. Frankincense is a symbol of prayer. 
It's a symbol of our connection to the divine that happens in prayer. It's when our, our thoughts are completely occupied with the Lord, and when they're rightly occupied with him, we can't help but praise him. And the Lord inhabits those praises and those prayers, and it's like incense rising up, and we are rising up with it into the presence of God, and he is descending down in it, in his presence. It's incense, that's the symbol that's being evoked here. And it is what Peter's talking about. He says, pay attention until the morning star rises in your heart, until your heart is like that, that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud, so full of the Holy Spirit, so full of the presence of God. And then lastly, the myrrh. For those of us who've been studying the scripture for years, we might remember that the myrrh is what was used to bury people. It's pointing to the death of Jesus, which is to come. It means that the entirety of our lives, when it's rightly lived, from beginning to end, all the way through death, is to be oriented to God. And Jesus, of course, is the only one who's able to do that perfectly. And he becomes the means by which we can have our lives, our strength, and our mind, and our spirit to come alive, not be subject to death, but everything about this mortal existence is completely his when we know who he is. The myrrh was actually the anointing oil that was used for the priests, the high priest that would go into that holy of holies. It's said, by the way, that um, in ancient tradition, this comes from a tradition of a couple, 300 years, is picked up by the early church, that Adam, when he was east in Eden, these men come from the east, maybe there's a symbol in that, I don't know. When he was in Eden and sent out of the garden, it was said that he lost his ability to be a priest in the presence of God because Eden was a paradise and it was a temple and it was the meaning of his life and he lost it. It is said that he took the means by which he could minister, which was gold and frankincense and myrrh, and he buried it in a cave, and it wasn't available for worship at that point. Moses reintroduces symbols of that, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These stand for something that I, I don't know that we really know, but it's the things that are most precious in, li in life. And with Jesus, these things are released. That holy of holies that only the high priest could enter into, he could enter into it because he'd been covered with the blood, he'd been cleansed. We've been covered with the blood of Jesus. We've been cleansed. If we bend the knee, because he'd been anointed from head to toe with the myrrh, which is a symbol of both death but also life. It was a symbol that the high priest was somehow showing Israel what it would be like if they could finally once again become sons of God. And so it was a symbol of the resurrection, even back then. The myrrh, it wasn't just a symbol of death, it was a symbol of resurrection, and we see that because Jesus, who's buried in the myrrh, rises up through that, and what happens is he becomes this Messiah who then pours out that oil on us in the Holy Spirit. We live in the resurrection life even now. We live in that resurrection light that won't ever be extinguished now. So these are profound, deep symbols 
These are treasures that are in scripture that I'm helping, I hope, for you to dig into a little bit about a different way of governance. How is it that our strength and how is it that our thoughts and how is it the ultimate meaning of our life, which is finalized as our, at our death, can it come fully into the light of the kingdom of God? How? Well, it's all in Jesus. And it's in the wisdom that he brings that these wise men pick up on. And then he begins to shed and pour out upon all of us. I want to encourage you to, to pay attention. Man, dig into the scriptures. Do you feel like I've been digging a little bit? I, I, I don't know how this feels to you. I, I've, I've dug out some meaning here that maybe you ever thought about. Dig into the scriptures. Pay attention. Bend the knee. Say, Lord, I feel nostalgic about what I'm missing. Bend the knee to his authority in your life and let those words now begin to shape you. Go into the church. Live a different way. Live in his way. And let your life, the meaning of it, from beginning to end, be oriented to him, the true star that has risen in the east. Lord Jesus, um, as we continue in this next season of Epiphany, your light is rising, even as the light of um, our season now is beginning to rise and lengthen. Lord, I pray that that would be so true in each of us. I pray, Lord, that today, as we bend the knee at confession, that we would be renewed in your lordship in our lives, that we would be renewed in our desire to, to meet you, to be in your home, to hear your words, to bend our wills to you, to have our minds filled with your light and prayer, and have our entire meaning be rooted and grounded in you. Lord, change us this day. Change us by your light. For you are the light of lights and the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Rule, O Lord, in our hearts and set us free. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.